Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to Mokum. Today we're going to be diving into the world of political economy with two summer school students as our guides. We'll hear from Martina Huynh and Archie Noble as they help us navigate through the intertwined worlds of politics and economics through topics that they're both passionate about. Before we get started with our first double feature episode, I want to pause and ask and answer a few important questions. What is political economy? Why should we study it? And how can it help us see the world around us in a different light? If, like me, your knowledge of political economy extends no further than checking your bank balance or voting in national elections, neither of which are topics appropriate for dinner table conversation, then have no fear. I am here to help you out. like an unnecessary complication of two fields we already know, right? Wrong. Political economy is an active framework that helps put two very important disciplines into dialogue with one another, making it more than a complication. In fact, many would argue that studying politics or economics as discrete fields unrelated to one another gives us far less than half the picture. So rather than seeing political economy as some sort of Frankenstein monster emerging from the shadows of our history textbooks to confront us, let's think of it instead as a helpful guide that shows us the world in more nuance than reducing the objects of its study would normally allow for. Put simply, political economy is the study of production and trade as they can be understood in relation to law, societal customs, and various styles of government. Political economy also helps us delve into some of those wide-reaching but nebulous concepts like national income distribution and wealth. So if this sounds a lot more complex than your standard introduction to micro or macroeconomics course, that's because it is. Where economics could be seen as a narrow field of study of economic factors in a fictitious vacuum, and sorry to any hardcore mathematical economists out there who don't like my gross oversimplification of their field and life work, political economy instead tries to put those principles into conversation with political and social considerations. And as we know, simply by virtue of being human, politics and society are anything but simple. Taken this way, political economy maybe more accurately presents a competing or alternative model to old school or mainstream economics. Studying it, therefore, requires looking at how humans create and employ not only economic principles and policies, but also how these are reflections of and come to influence societies that we belong to in myriad ways. Basically, political economy wraps up all those lovely and challenging social science disciplines like sociology and anthropology, with a good dose of history and philosophy as well, to try and wake us up to the fact that actions and policies have consequences, and these are not limited only to the economic realm. They extend far beyond that, entering our world bundled up in that convenient shorthand term, politics. And this bundle is not a series of linear associations, but could more accurately be conceived of as a network or web of cause and effect. And since we all know that the political is not only national or supranational, but also oftentimes personal, 
then political economy gives insights into the ways in which economic decisions are never merely those alone. Good. Still with me? Even if you're not, don't worry. Martina and Archie are going to help you see political economy questions from their point of view. They were both students in our recent summer school on political economy, part of a group of students from all over the world who met to learn, discuss, and debate various aspects of the field, each bringing important insights into the program. Now, due to COVID-19 measures, our course sessions all met online, and we wanted to give participants the opportunity to reflect on what they learned in a format other than an essay or a midterm exam. So we asked them to do some vocal warm-ups, get their creative juices flowing, and create a short podcast episode on political economy questions that are near and dear to them. I'm going to play them for you back to back, but before we get started with Martina's clip, I want to take the time to briefly introduce her. Martina was born in Basel in 92, and while originally from Switzerland, she left the Alps of her childhood for the flat riverlands and deltas of the Netherlands, and now lives in Rotterdam. In 2013, she started a Bachelor in Media and Communication at the Design Academy in Eindhoven, and three years ago, co-founded studio Cream on Chrome with social designer Jonas Althaus. Like me, Martina is a podcast freak and uses them as sources of inspiration for some of the many things that interest her and on which she hopes to work, coming up with some pretty nifty combos like fungi and electricity networks and stock markets and ecosystems. Martina took our political economy course because she's deeply interested in how the individual is imbricated within the systemic, and the other way around. Given the wide-ranging nature of her projects that she works on, Martina wanted to pump up her knowledge of political economy to give a better foundational overview of the nuanced complexities of our globalized world. In her clip, Martina explores answers to basic but murky questions. What drives growth? And immediately after asking this question, she asked lots of relevant follow-ups. Why have some countries developed so rapidly while others lagged behind? Can you hear my scare quotes? And what do these things actually mean? Fascinated by the dominant narratives of free trade and the free market, Martina dives into this contradictory world of economic growth in her clip, taking Taiwan and South Korea as case studies. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Martina's dulcet tones and her astute analysis. Welcome to UVA Political Economy, a podcast uncovering the mechanisms behind today's global questions. I'm today's host, Martina Huyn. I always wondered how come countries like South Korea, a country I heard next to nothing about back in my teens, how they managed to propel themselves to the level of technological superpower in recent years. In this episode, we're going to talk about how it is thanks to strong, state-driven market regulation and planning, and not a free trade approach as generally advised, that countries like South Korea witness such astronomical growth in just a few decades. Now you might be wondering, what are the general assumptions on free trade? Free trade is characterized by a market in which supply and demand of goods and services shall lead to the most efficient way of distributing resources. And because it will always find its natural equilibrium, it is also referred to as a self-regulating system, which best functions when states don't intervene. 
Now, seen on an international scale, the assumption goes that the more countries are open to trade with one another, without artificially altering the prices of certain goods via, say, import tariffs and such, then the result will be most beneficial to all participating economies. Now, it is widely believed that because most rich countries practice free trade today, that this economic strategy must have propelled them to this advantageous position. The US especially has been a major supporter of this view. Left or right, this Washington consensus prevailed at least up until recently. And since the US is one of the largest, if not still the largest, player in the global economy, this form of liberal reasoning has left a remarkable stamp on international organizations such as the International Monetary Fund, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank and so forth. So what does it mean? It means that whenever such international organizations offer any financial support to developing countries, that money is usually tied to conditions. You have to imagine their role a bit like belligerent and insistent parents telling developing countries, the younger generation, to follow their advice on good policy. And I mean, how do you define what's universally good for everyone, considering the countries have different ideals and historic trajectories, right? And the way these global organizations see it, good means more liberal and openly engaging in free trade. Just do as we did and you'll catch up with us in no time. That's the promise. Now to continue a bit with this analogy, people like me in my late 20s would say, no, times have changed. We cannot just follow what the previous generation did and expect the same results. In a similar way, now developed countries have an enormous advantage over developing countries. Especially if you look at the productivity gap now, compared to when today's rich countries were still growing. It has become much harder for developing countries to compete with the already established players on the market. So how can anyone expect that unregulated free trade would not put developing countries at a disadvantage? And besides, opening up markets to free international trade without protection is not exactly what today's developed countries owe their success to. In fact, most of them first adopted protectionist strategies with high tariffs so they could shield and build their economies before launching into the market. But that's for another episode. So how did Taiwan and South Korea manage to grow like this? Did they just follow the advice, open up the markets to global trade and that's it? Well, if we take a look at post-war South Korea and Taiwan, we see that in both countries the government focused on three stages to upgrade the economy. And none of them look anything close to a liberal, laissez-faire approach. So the first thing they did was to support the agricultural sector. Both countries didn't have much other resources or industrial manufacturing back then, so they had to start somewhere. And it was a great move, because it also harnessed political support from the large peasant communities and constituencies. The governments invested directly in agriculture, but also in better education, which in turn led to higher agricultural productivity, which again increased levels of food security. At the same time that these rural reforms took place, both countries started to push for the domestic production of low-value goods, in order to become less dependent on expensive imports. We call this import substitution. In the second phase, goods had to be promoted for export, so the overall industry could grow. To achieve that, Taiwan and South Korea had to create more structured and cohesive bureaucratic systems. They both made a good start in stage one, agricultural reforms, education, but with the support of more advanced institutions, 
Private companies could be enlisted in improving exports, the quality of manufactured goods and sharing skills with domestic labour. The third stage focused on upgrading existing industries even further, creating higher value-added goods by investing in higher education, for instance, often technically oriented, leading to new innovations, and again in setting up better institutions. They structure and monitor the performance of firms and research institutions, consultations with the private sector, all while keeping the interests of firms aligned with the public good, which requires not only good institutions, but also a strong government. What I want to tell is that state-directed planning of the economy was essential to the economic growth of South Korea and Taiwan. Why? Because these state-driven strategies led to the necessity of building better institutions so the proper functioning and transition between the three phases could be facilitated and ensured, leading all the way to the success story we know now. We heard from the last episode that institutions are the main driver of economic growth. Now, does that mean that we should just export these institutions to developing countries instead of preaching free trade? Well, it's a lot more complicated. But all in all, institutions don't just pop up when you ask for it. They are complex and costly to set up. In the case of Taiwan, South Korea and also Singapore, several factors came together that made it in the best interest for those in power to really invest in the country's public infrastructure and various industrial sectors. And collaborating with private companies and getting some foreign direct investment can certainly help in that effort. But again, you need a strong state, good institutions to keep check on them. And above all, you need a good plan on how you want to develop. Otherwise, you run the risk of having your industries and labor exploited by profit-seeking firms or multinational corporations. In that sense, it is not advisable to simply export what worked in one country, because the conditions in every country are very different international organizations would do better in supporting each country on a case-specific level, rather than imposing outdated methods. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode on free trade versus state-driven mechanisms of growth. Don't forget to subscribe to Uva Podcast and tune in for the next episode. Bye! Welcome back, folks. I hope you enjoyed Martina's section. I know that I did. Some of the things that Martina beautifully highlights to my mind are the dynamics of how some parts of the world, certainly the global north, but not limited to those states, act like they know better than others when it comes to creating economic prosperity. This even to the point that international organizations would make it a condition for developing countries to take their great advice whenever developing countries are given financial support. It's that sort of belittling rhetoric that says a lot about the relationships and motives of the states and organizations involved in these discussions. The questions of equity and relationships are also really brought to the fore through a political economy framework. Up next, we have Archie Noble. Archie was born and raised in Sheffield, Yorkshire, and has just completed his second year studying sociology at the University of Sheffield. And in September, Archie is planning on moving to the Netherlands to study abroad here for a year. Exciting! But aside from studying, Archie also writes songs and plays music around the pubs and venues in Sheffield. I can just picture the cozy atmosphere now. More recently, he's also been involved with Student Action for Chilean Human Rights, which has been campaigning to support political prisoners in Chile. And throughout whatever it is Archie does, people and community always seem to be at the heart of it. 
It's no surprise then that this summer, Archie decided to register for our political economy course because he became interested in the political and economic sides of sociology throughout his degree, and wanted to further study them in more depth to help nuance his current education in his regular studies. When looking for a topic to record his podcast episode on, Archie chose the topic of EU integration and the UK's relation to the single market and customs union. Particularly recently, this has been a fairly heated debate in the UK, to put it mildly, uh, also here in the European Union. So it's a topic that Archie has been forced to be aware of. More specifically, it's been on his mind recently due to the extra paperwork that's needed to sort out moving to the Netherlands for next year, which wouldn't have been necessary a year ago. Archie has found this paperwork, in his own words, especially irritating, like so many of us who are caught up in the wheels of bureaucracy. Related to his own position, Archie thinks topics like these are also of interest to others, given the constantly changing situation between the European Union and the United Kingdom since the much-discussed Brexit. The political and economic ramifications of that campaign and decision have been shown to have significant impact on people's day-to-day -day lives, not just in the UK, and most notably in Ireland, but also in the rest of the European Union as well. I'm going to play Archie's recording now, born from the frustrations of paperwork and still so beautifully analyzed and argued. Hello, this talk is going to be about trade, specifically free trade within the European single market and the impact that it has on political integration in Europe, with a focus on the 2008 financial crisis. The takeaway from this presentation will be that economic unity and the integration of free trade is not enough of an adequate driving force to result in political integration and unity. To do this, this presentation is structured in the following way. First I'll provide a fairly brief overview of some background information, then look at some specific cases of where membership of the single market has helped political integration, and some cases where it has not, specifically with the 2008 financial crash. So I'll begin by discussing some of the necessary background information in this case. Throughout the development of the EU, from 1952 with the foundation of the European Coal and Steel Community, up until the late 90s with the introduction of the single currency, the prevailing thought amongst many political and economic commentators was that by integrating Europe economically, the political integration of Europe would become inevitable. This is because not only would the mutual economic dependency make intra-European conflicts unlikely, as it would be in no one's economic interests to start conflicts, but also the requirements of maintaining such a large free trade area would require some necessary governing regulations and institutions. And in the reading, Roderick argued that any market requires three types of institutions, market legitimating, regulating and stabilising. By this has meant similar property rights, standards, fair competition, etc., as is seen in the customs union. Now, of course, this integration wasn't taken as a good thing by everyone. For instance, UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher opposed the introduction of the single currency as federalism through the back door, whereas, of course, pro-federalists supported the introduction of it for precisely the same reason. And I think that this is significant as it demonstrates that the belief that economic integration would inevitably lead to political integration was not a view shared only by pro-European or anti-Europeans, or pro-free trade or anti-free trade, but generally across all of these groups. Now, the political integration of Europe did progress significantly over the first 50 years. For example, the establishment of the European Parliament, the European Court of Justice and the European Commission. However, many commentators have argued that this has stalled over the last 20 years or so. 
pointed to the example of the European Constitution referendum in 2005, which was rejected in a public vote in France. Though many of the more popular reforms were introduced later through the Lisbon Treaty in 2007. Similarly, the expansion of the EU to new member states has been seen to slow down as well, as since the entry of the Baltic states, the Visegrad Group, Slovenia, Cyprus and Malta in 2004, then Romania and Bulgaria in 2007, until finally Croatia in 2013, there has been no further expansion of the EU, with none of the Western Balkans predicted to join before 2025 at the earliest. And this is not to forget the UK, which of course left the EU single market and customs union in 2021. Now, of course, some political integration is necessary as a requirement for joining the single market, which is referred to as the Copenhagen Criteria, dealing with the rule of law as well as regulations such as dealing with safety and standards for within the customs union. However, here I would emphasise the direction of causality, as this integration is a prerequisite for membership of the single market and customs union, and not integration caused by membership of them. Now I'm going to turn to look at uh, just two examples which do demonstrate the significance of the single market. First, when we look at the trading partners of countries within the single market, we see that the greatest proportion of their trade is between other single market countries. And in fact, a majority of UK trade in 2018, while it was still a member, was with other countries in the single market. And more recently, and perhaps significantly, we've seen for the first time more trade between Northern Ireland with the Republic of Ireland rather than Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And it's clear that the reason for this is because though the UK, including Northern Ireland, left the EU, Northern Ireland has remained in the single market and customs union in order to prevent a hard border in Ireland. So here we see quite a sudden change in where trade in Northern Ireland is going between. And I think this case emphasises the impact of the UK leaving the single market and customs union. I'm going to now turn to what many commentators see as the crucial event in damaging political integration in Europe and that is the 2008 financial crash. So briefly, the financial crash began in the US, where a system that aimed to give investors effectively risk-free risk collapsed, which caused a knock-on effect throughout the world, but predominantly in the US and in Europe. Now the thinking in Europe prior to this was that the markets were performing well and that there wasn't this intrinsic vulnerability in how they were structured and how they functioned. And this thinking meant that not only did the EU lack the necessary market regulating institutions to prevent the crash from affecting the single market, but it also lacked the market stabilising institutions in order to quickly limit the worst effects of the crash, with the worst affected countries being Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece and Spain. And here we see the beginning of a north-south divide. And here the political impact is huge. As following 2008, we see rising unemployment, stagnating wages, low investment and austerity in public services, and from this, quite a sizable and public backlash against globalisation and the current market system. Uh, we see this with the rise of the anti-global right, such as Orban's Fidesz in Hungary, Law and Justice in Poland, the AfD in Germany, National Front in France, Vox in Spain, so on and so on. Uh, but also to some extent the rise in the reformist left, most notably the Syriza government in Greece, uh, but also Podemos in Spain, Sinn Féin in Ireland, and to some extent Corbyn's leadership of the UK Labour Party. And perhaps most significantly in the Brexit referendum, which I think it's safe to say was motivated more by uh, anti-austerity, a dislike for the current Conservative government, and wanting to demonstrate a general dissatisfaction with the current political economic situation, rather than any anti-EU sentiment, which had not really been mainstream in UK political discourse since the 1970s. And really this response of austerity measures that was introduced 
did little to improve either the economic nor political situation. Uh, turning back to the single market, significantly the rise in the far right in the Visegrad group states, most notably in Poland and Hungary, meant that these governments have reversed some of the political integration, uh, such as the rule of law, the independence of the judiciary, and so on. But here we see a problem, as many of the Western countries, such as France and Germany, are quite dependent on the East for trade, not only with cheap labour, but also for importing manufactured goods. So that we see a reluctance to take any really bold steps that would damage these countries economically uh, and disrupt trade relations within the single market on a Western-East divide. So here we see how the economic integration has rather than helped develop political integration has instead created a situation where political integration has been and is being sacrificed in order to maintain economic stability within the single market. And so to quickly summarise, I think that this duality in how free trade can have such different impacts demonstrates um, why it's not always reliable as a motivator for political integration. Thank you. Much like Martina, Archie lays the emphasis on where the individual gets caught up in the web of decisions and outcomes that become the contexts of our daily lives. Political economy becomes a way to decipher this web of interactions and helps us pinpoint exactly what is going on and who it's affecting. After listening to both of their clips, I can't help but think that political economy is not only an excellent framework for deciphering the world around us and our relationship to it, but also that it should be a standard part of our education. And while I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family where, unlike what I suggested in my introduction, politics and economics were encouraged dinner table topics of conversation, these important principles and questions were often left out of our regular curriculum at school. Martina and Archie prove that a political economy perspective is an excellent addition to our arsenal of tools that we have at our disposal for helping to not only come to terms with the shape of the world today, but also perhaps to make it a more just and equitable place by bringing topics and themes together rather than attempting to isolate them within discrete disciplines. When we do that, we miss the nuance and the personal realities of many people who are caught up in what can be an international or global web of policymaking, retaliation, and planning. So I say, bring on the messy but enlightening world of political economy. And don't forget, it's only confusing sometimes because the world is confusing. And maybe by employing this sort of perspective, we can demystify the realities that we're all caught up in. Mocum is brought to you by the Summer Programs Office at the University of Amsterdam's Graduate School of Social Sciences. For more about our programs, head over to summerschool.uva.nl, send us an email at summer-info-gsss at uva.nl, that's one G and three S's, or follow us on Instagram at the link in the bio. Special thanks today to Martina Huynh and Archie Noble for lending their voices to Mocum and for their enthusiastic participation this summer. You both rock, and we're so glad to call you Summer Programs alumni. 